You're listening to Music Tectonics. Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Music Tectonics podcast. I am your host for today, Tristra Neuer Jaeger, Director of Strategy at Rock Paper Scissors Inc., the Music Tech PR firm. Today we have a really fun guest who's joining us, and I'm really excited to have a it's hopefully going to be a wide-ranging, fun, and slightly crazy pants conversation about music, music technology, intellectual property, mashups, you name it, we're going to cover it. We'll see what happens here. So my guest today is Aram Sinreich, who is a professor and chair of the Communication Studies Division at American University School of Communication. Aram's work focuses on the intersection of culture, law, and technology, with an emphasis on subjects such as surveillance, we're going to get into creepy territory here, um, critical data studies, intellectual property, remix culture, and music, most importantly, last but definitely not least. Um, He's written, yes, awesome. He's written three books, including Mashed Up, The Piracy Crusade, which is a really fun read, um, and The Essential Guide to Intellectual Property, which is probably also a fun read, um, you know, especially considering the topic. So um, Aram has also written for publications like The New York Times, Billboard, and Wired, and has another book coming out in 2023 called The Secret Life of Data, which I'm sure will be very scandalous. So um, as well as all of this incredible scholarly and um, thought leadership type work, Aram also is a musician who is a working musician, has an album that he's releasing with his, uh, and he can, Aram, you can tell us a bit about that project at the end of our, our chat today, as well as a sci-fi novel coming out in 2023. Um, and I should probably mention this in the interest of full disclosure, Aram is a good friend of mine and a former bandmate who put up with my younger self with a great deal of kindness. So um, if our conversation sounds like a chat between old friends, there's a reason for that. So Aram, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, Tristra, it's a pleasure to hear your voice. Uh, <laughs> and, it's, and the feeling is mutual. So um, unfortunately, the pleasure may end now because we're going to talk about Web3 for a second, if you don't mind. No. <laughs> yeah, All right. We gotta, we're going to wade into the metaverse um, up to our, up to our uh, knees or maybe our eyeballs. So, but really, um, as someone who's thought for a lot about intellectual property, um, the digital life of music, data, all of that, this must be kind of a crazy time for you. I mean, in one way, so the way I'm thinking about it is we have this, we're in this interesting point when it comes to concepts and practices around digital ownership. And it involves IP, it involves like, you know, centuries old laws. Um, and what we kind of come up with now could determine a lot of fan and artist experiences in the near and long-term future. So I'm wondering, as someone who's been watching this space for a long time um, and has a lot of thoughts about it, what do you what how do you see it is there a lot that's really new here or is this kind of like same song new cover like is it the sort of the same as it ever was despite the hype well it's obviously you know the underlying technology of of web3 is is pretty new the whole blockchain infrastructure but the basic issues you know the the kind of tension between music as a kind of uh, you know, operating system for society and and a shared set of cultural touchstones on the one hand, and as a scarce commodity exploited in the marketplace uh, for profit on the other hand, you know, that's, that's a tale as old as time. Um, what's interesting to me about it is uh, this, the, the kind of uh, the, 
the hoops that uh, that people will jump through in order to generate artificial scarcity after going through all the trouble of creating a platform that allows everybody to get access to everything always forever. Um, you know, one thing that we've been talking about in the music industry since my days as as an industry analyst uh, back in the late 1990s, turn of the century, was how you could simultaneously create a business model that would incentivize artists to produce work and incentivize labels and publishers to put work out into the uh, into the marketplace, while at the same time taking advantage of all of the cool features that the internet offers, like giving people access to the entire cultural archive with the click of the button and making sure that nobody gets left out of the equation. And when I say nobody left out, I don't just mean consumers getting access to tens of millions of songs the way that you would on Spotify uh, or Apple Music, but also artists, you know, uh, people of a certain age like you and me. I mean, back when we started out as, as working musicians, uh, there was no way to get your music on the radio uh, unless you were assigned to a big label. And there was no way to get your music onto store shelves unless you put a bunch of boxes of uh, cassettes in the back of your car and drove around from store to store begging them to, uh, to buy 10 at wholesale price or, or on spec. Um, so so the, the access that the internet provides to independent and smaller label musicians uh, to the global marketplace is indispensable. So yeah, I think there's, there's a real tension between wanting to open things up and wanting to close things down. And you know, there's no good guys or bad guys, uh, but, but there, there's also no such thing as an infinitely large pie that everybody can have a slice of. And so every decision we make about laws and technologies and economics, and even about cultural decisions, like what kinds of genres we're going to support and what kinds of artists we think are, are serious or important, are ultimately kind of ranked choice decisions about who gets to participate and who doesn't and who gets, to, who gets all the oxygen. And one of the things I think has been interesting is that after, you know, there's a kind of period of time between like Napster and, you know, the, the introduction of Spotify in the U.S. where, you know, there really was a, a, a massive widening up of, uh, of the music marketplace to new entrants, to new styles, uh, musicians from different regions, musicians from different genres. Um, and, you know, the, the kind of apex of this was the MySpace moment. And I know you remember this because you're a working musician, too. Um, and you may have already been at RPS at the time. I'm not sure. But, but you know, when, when MySpace came out, it was like the greatest thing that had ever happened to bands because you could just throw a bunch of tracks streaming online. And then people would email you and ask you to play gigs and offer you contracts and, and invite you to festivals and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, very rapidly, uh, a combination of interests began to shut that down because providing, creating a gateway that, that limits access of market entrance to consumers is the biggest business model in the world. And Facebook has really perfected that, although obviously the major labels and the Spotify's and Apple's of the world have played a large role as well. But, you know, Facebook's whole business model is now selling brands access to their own consumers, right? And, uh, and, and that's something that, that, that you can't really do except at scale. And so what we've, what we've seen happening over the past 10 years is actually that, you know, it's become even more of a winner-take-all market 
that it was prior to the invention of the internet. And just a handful of artists are responsible for the vast bulk of economic activity in the music marketplace, which I think is 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 bad for everybody else. It's it's interesting too. I love the way you talk about music as an, as an operating system for our culture and our society. Um, it's interesting too to think about you know the the openness to the the passive enjoyment of music, right? Like fans are often put in this quasi passive position. And yet what a lot of folks are excited about when it comes to Web3 technologies and the sort of communities that are popping up around it are, are the um, the active community. And again, we can talk about what community is. And I feel like there's a big ethnographic chunk that's missing from our conversation about um, about this stuff. But um, there are people out there doing the work. Oh, you yeah, know, I'm sure. It's not always part of the conversation. Yeah. And and, and that, that that's a really sad thing is that the silo, um, the silos are. Are, are so uh, taught and, and many, you know, academics are in, sort of disincentivized to go out and start talking to, you know, the crypto bros on Twitter um, <laughs> and having helpful conversations. Anyway, um, that aside, you know, there's a lot this idea that artists, first of all, have a direct relationship with all the people who appreciate their work. And there's this idea that the work could be an, un, an ongoing, ever evolving thing, um, which in some ways is a curious dream I mean, it's sort of a weird mix of like the folk music ideal right and and the sort of idea of having works of art that incorporate all of the media right like all the visual movement um you know uh, the, the taste, touch. exactly i didn't want to go there i was like what is another word for gesamtkunstwerk but you're an academic so you can say that word i love it Anywho, so so it's this weird moment, right, where everyone technically can start to make music more and more easily and more and more fluently in a way that could express something important for them. But that throws this whole recorded music paradigm into this strange place, right? Like, it, it's almost like we're going to have two operating systems, right? One where people are making stuff all the time and it's ephemeral and they don't care and they don't really want, maybe they, maybe they want to share it, maybe they don't. And then there's the people who are dedicated professionals or something like that or aspiring to be, I don't know what, it's crazy. It is crazy. Look, it's, it's always been the case, right? Mm -hmm. Even before there was such a thing as a music industry, um, music has been uh, pretty strictly regulated by the powers that be, right? Like the ancient Egyptian dynasties used to put up giant stone monoliths telling people what kinds of music they were allowed to play and what kinds of music they weren't allowed to play, right? The Catholic Church famously micromanaged, uh, you know, Tonality, music up, through yeah. Baroque, <laughs> up through the Baroque era, you yeah. know, for, for 1500 years and, and you know, would, would, would bring down the heavy manners on people who were not obeying church prescribed uh, harmonies. Um, and, you know, so things begin to change with the development of the, the, the printing press and, and the, the birth of the modern music industry with the, the rise of music publishers in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, and then the creation of copyright, uh, which gets applied to music over the next two or 300 years. Um, but I don't see that as the beginning of something so much as the transformation of this power that's always been exerted over music in order to control it. Music is really dangerous because it's the operating system for human consciousness and human culture, because music is how people orient themselves, understand who they are and what their relationship to other people is. 
Uh, music is is it's a medium for for oral history, for cultural memory, um, for international relations and intercultural relations. Right? We use music for our national anthems. We use it at ballparks. We use it uh, w- when we're getting soldiers ready for war. We use it on prisoners to torture them when when they're under lock and key. Right? Music is a lot more than just an entertainment medium. And because of that tremendous power it has, it has always been subject to these battles over control. And you know, once music becomes synonymous with, uh, with a physical uh, commodity, once it becomes a printed score, and later on, once it becomes a, a, you know, a recording that gets distributed uh, as you know, vinyl or cassette or CD or what have you, um, we begin to think about music in, t- in those kinds of physical terms and that the kind of battle over the control of music becomes the battle over the control of those objects, right? We, there, it's, it's kind of a, a little bit of a bait and switch operation where we start to think that the CD is the music or that the recording is the music. But the reality is that music has always been, to, your, to use your term, ephemeral, right? There is no such thing as a finished product. And, you know, when you look back at like, in my first book, in Mashed Up, I wrote I wrote about this uh, this crazy story about uh, Hector Berlioz, the uh, the you know the, the 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 romantic musician who got really upset and staged this massive public awareness campaign because this publisher had dared to edit some of Beethoven's harmonies, and he thought Beethoven was like the greatest genius of all time, and so he like tried to get this guy like blacklisted basically and ended up kind of getting blacklisted himself because the guy that he was messing with was more powerful than he was. Um, so, you know, that was a battle over, you know, when, when Beethoven puts the last, you know, drop of ink on the page, is the composition finished or is it still a living, breathing thing? And in some ways, the publisher who messed with his harmonies, who messed with Beethoven's harmonies was kind of more progressive than the young firebrand Berlioz was when he tried to get him you know, kicked out of the academy for for messing with with Beethoven, right? This question of ephemerality, you know, it's it's like a game of hot potato, right? Like when when somebody does not want music to be ephemeral, what that means is that they want it to be static. They want it to be frozen in time and place. They want it to be a known quantity that that is delimited, that has a, a finite set of dimensions to it. And then you have to ask yourself, like, what's that person's interest in that? Why doesn't this person want somebody to have the power to interpret or edit or sample or cut and paste or, uh, or you know, re-genrefy or whatever other operations people do. Why doesn't somebody want this piece of music to live and breathe? What, is, what do they have invested in the version that they think is definitive? Um, and, you know, that question is huge. But the short answer to it is that you know, it, it speaks to all of those different social functions we were talking about before. To decide definitively, this is the this is the official piece of music, and that is not the official piece of music, is essentially to say definitively these uses are official and those uses are non-official, and therefore these users are official and those users are non-official, and you're essentially using music to create a social hierarchy, a power hierarchy. So when I look at, you know, like Web3 and I look at, at NFTs and all of that crap, you know, it seems to me like really very much the same set of efforts to, you know, like you all can have the MP3 version of this, but my MP3 is the only official MP3 because the blockchain tells me so. And that means that mine is more economically valuable. And that means that I am the king shit and the rest of you are a bunch of pishers who've got nothing going for them. Right. And, and 
it doesn't need to, there's no technological or economic need for it to be that way. But we seem to have some kind of psychosocial need to organize ourselves hierarchically. And we keep using music and technology as a way to do that. The, well, let's look at a different aspect of music and, and another way that it can operate. Um, and, and that is, and that's something that people love to talk about. They talked about it with, you know, with the first internet explosion and the MySpace era. They talked about it with, you know, Web 2.0. They talked about it with, with Web 3. Um, and that there is this sort of longing, or at least this longing to believe that there could be a flattening of this hierarchy, right? And that technology could somehow magically help us you know, unlock that, and that that would unlock a great deal of human potential through creativity, through uh, you know people using music to uh, you know maybe manage their emotions, um, you know, calibrate their mind body or whatever, however we want to think about it, mm. or make music with other people and and reach across maybe um, cultural rifts or, or gaps. What um, do you see any flattening? I mean, that you pointed out really well how the hierarchy it could is being reconstructed in Web three. And um, what are what are some of the more flattening tendencies that you're seeing? Well, you know, the the peer to peer moment, the kind of Napster through LimeWire period um, was a showed a real flattening in terms of um, power over distribution, which led to, I think, in my both quantitative and qualitative analysis, I've seen a lot of evidence that people's tastes expanded during that period of time. And, you know, taste is really a marker. There, there was this, uh, you probably read him, this French sociologist named Pierre Bourdieu, who wrote this book called Distinction about 40 years ago. And what, you know, the point of his, his, his book was that, in his words, taste classifies, and it classifies the classifier, right? So if, if you're a, a hoity-toity opera lover, that means you're super fancy. And if, you know, you're into like, uh, trap music, that means something else. And if you're into like, you know, uh, classic rock, that means something else. And um, what happens when people don't have to pay to invest in a music library is that they get much broader tastes, which actually means that they can explore many more dimensions of their identity and communicate and share tastes with a much broader range of people, which has the potential to democratize and flatten out society. So I, I think to the extent that you can use Web3 technology in ways like DAOs, you know, DAOs mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that kind of uh, create non-hierarchical ownership and power, power structures surrounding the production and use of cultural information, you can kind of hardwire a, a, a kind of flattening out into it. But the problem is that DAOs themselves, just by virtue of being so techy and arcane, not to mention bro-y, you know, <laughs> pre-select. They, they do pre-select, right? So there's there's a kind of invisible kind of uh, you know velvet rope surrounding them, which which is every bit as uh, you know uh, elitist as as you know the velvet rope surrounding the entrance to the opera house, and so you know you have to look like the ultimately the like the proof is in the pudding, and, and this is why I loved mashups so much. You know, when I wrote uh, the book Mashed Up, you know w what I found most interesting about it wasn't I mean, I loved I loved a lot of the music. I thought some of the early mashups were just absolutely brilliant and yeah. hilarious, um, and and you know dangerous. But what I loved most about it is, you know, I'd interview the people who were like 
doing these mashup clubs like booty and they'd say yeah you know we've got like three generations of people from every ethnicity gay and straight all dancing together to the same songs right and how often do you see that right see people from completely different Mm. cultural identities and communities in the same room getting down together to the same music right it's really 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 difficult to produce music that so many different people can relate to and and share in their love for. And so I think, you know, the proof is ultimately in the pudding, right? If you look at a DAO or you look at a club or you look at a marketplace and what you see is a broad range of people all connecting through music, despite their cultural differences, or even better yet, through their cultural differences, through some kind of reconciliation of them, then you're flattening things out. But if you walk into the room and it's the same person over and over again, like you'll see at the front row of the opera house, you know, you're not, nothing that you say is going to change the fact that it's a fundamentally elitist hierarchical structure that you've built for yourself and you should be ashamed and and you should go home and and think about what you did. Exactly. I like how you're like, you're, you're recommending a good timeout. (laughs) <laughs> well, for some of these punishment, so you know <laughs> so the, but you you bring up mashups and i wanted to talk to you a little bit more about that um i think that is an excellent example of how um some kinds certain kinds of changes in technology can really facilitate a whole new aesthetic right so um whereas people were trying to do this stuff before it was really it'd be really really hard to do this with with analog so um, and without Not to access, say it wasn't done. oh no, of course, of course, you could do all sorts of crazy shit, but you, it took a way more skill, way more time. Like you'd have to really be dedicated to do a mashup <laughs> using tape or something. So, tell me a bit about um, just how you see, and it, you don't have. We can talk about something besides mashups. How you were thinking about the ways technology can sort of influence our aesthetics, and whether that's bringing us something new. Um, giving it new opportunities or maybe even, you know, narrowing. I mean, we've talked about broadening taste too, um, but how is it also channeling us down certain things? Like, for instance, we could talk about something like auto-tune where people start expecting that the vocals will have at least a, a, a dash of auto-tune. And I'm not an auto-tune hater, but... Um, yeah, me just, neither. Mm-hmm, but just saying that there, there starts to... Technology can both open up our minds and give us more, uh, more crazy things we can try and experiment with, like mashups, it can also narrow it. So give me a little bit of your insights on that front. Uh, sure. Well, I, I think, you know, technology doesn't do anything to music. I think mm-hmm. people do things with technology through music, right? So, so if you think about it, like every musical aesthetic is people communicating to people, right? Packing a whole bunch of meaning into, uh, into a couple of sound waves. It's like a hologram. Right. Like, the, you know, you just look at like, you know, th- there have been these incredible uh, studies where people can hear like uh, a tenth of a second of music and identify with 90 percent accuracy what genre that music is in. Mm-hmm. Right. So like a, a teensy little bit of musical information carries a tremendous punch in terms of giving our brains information about who's making the music who that music is for, what the music is supposed to mean, what kind of mood is associated with it, what kind of social use goes along with it, all of that stuff. So the, the way that I think about it, all music incorporates an understanding, a, a tacit understanding of the kind of enabling technologies for production and distribution and consumption into that music, 
right? So, you know, very famously, we could go back to, you know, the rise of Baroque music. Baroque was keyboard music, right? And the keyboard itself was this kind of unholy mathematical, you know, hodgepodge that kind of cut the octave into these 12 even uh, totally mathematically ridiculous relationships to each other, but, but, it, but allowed you to play in different keys. Um, and therefore, you know, anytime you hear music that's, that's in a chromatic uh, scale, you are listening to the kind of cultural and technological history of, uh, you know, the industrial, industrialized Europe, right? And the creation of the 12-tone scale and the, the, the piano keyboard and the, you know, getting rid of all of the other tones in the scale, which, as you know very well, is not the case for microtonal musics like Asian music or, you know, African music or what have you. Um, and so uh, I think the same thing is true if you look at, at you know, at, at modern music. You know, uh, somebody like Phil Spector uh, was very famous. His wall of sound music was, you know, produced for like, uh, for, for portable radios, something that would sound good when somebody was listening to a transistor radio on, on the beach, right? And so that technology was kind of anticipated in the aesthetic. And, you know, I think the same thing is very true now. People are making music that is intended to be listened to on like Beats headphones and, um, you know, uh, cranking up the bass and, and letting most of the kind of fun stuff happen in that, in that region uh, spectrographically. Um, and, you know, the, there's no such thing as a music that does not take into account the, the technology of it. Uh, I was talking about opera before, right? Opera is written for opera houses. It's, it's music that is intended to carry and fill up a giant room like that, right? That's very different than, you know, your favorite singer-songwriter crooning intimately into a microphone, um, which sounds like you're, like, you know, in bed with them, right? So... I, you know, I, I think the same goes for autotune, by the way. I don't think autotune is any more limiting or uh, contrived than a piano keyboard is, right? A piano keyboard takes the entire universe of different tones and only selects 12 of them over and over again uh, and, and eliminates all, makes the rest technologically impossible to play, right? Unless you're like John Cage or something and you're messing with the piano. Um, <laughs> The, the thing Park. that's the yeah. thing that's so interesting about autotune is because there's you know we're we're used to listening our ears you know and our brains are tuned to listen to all of the nuances of voices and it kind of segments the nuances like the piano and and in some ways adds I always often think of autotune as like an ornamentation layer right like mm -hmm. if you were to somehow have someone um, who could perform all sorts of crazy or vocal or ornaments while singing a main melody at the same time anyway it is. It is, it is. Um, well, it makes melisma, mm. it makes melismatic technique very different, right? Yeah. I mean, you're you're yeah, a melismatic yeah. singer, so you know whereof I speak. Like, I've heard you sing all these, like, Bosnian folk songs and stuff, which is, you know, this kind of throaty overtone melismatic mm -hmm. singing with drone that you can never do with autotune. But yeah. you can, you know, you can. Here's the interesting there's this great video that people who are listening to this can look up on YouTube if they want, which we is- can, We can throw it in the show notes too. Oh, that'd be awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's Stevie Wonder singing oh, Close to You using a talk box on oh, TV wow. in like 1971, Oh, wow, that's awesome. And, and it's basically like the precursor to modern R&B autotune. Mm -hmm. But what the way that I've always, and, and he's doing, you know, he's got the little tube going into his mouth and he's playing the notes on the keyboard as he sings. So that all the notes are coming from the, the keyboard right and then he's using his mouth as a resonator wow 
right? You know that old technology? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So when I show that to like my students, like he, he is performing techno blackness, mm-hmm. right? He's using like post gospel African American, like, you know, uh, melismatic techniques along with this technology that's supposed to chop things up and make it make them inhuman but he's huh. rehumanizing the technology and it sounds way, like such a stevie wonder thing to do <laughs> it is that was like his whole shtick right yeah but it's like it's like it's like um it's like john henry right like he is demonstrating this his his ma- through his mastery of the technology he's demonstrating the essential power and value of his humanity right by like i can t- take even this janky piece of tech and I can make it soulful as shit. I'm going to do it on live television so everybody can see it. Right? Amazing. And Amazing. I think that the best R&B artists do that with auto-tune. Oh, right? yeah. they're, they're not using auto-tune to hide weaknesses. They're using auto-tune to exaggerate their strengths. Yeah, right? it, can, it can be a big flex because you can hear how spot on like it, their, their transitions are and how, anyway, it, it does really like make the ornaments pop and the, the melisma pop. It's pretty totally. cool. Totally. Or, you mm. know, or, or like, like, you know, a, like a pointillist artist or like mm. Picasso in his blue period. Like let's, let's take a very limited palette and let's tell a story of infinite depth, paint, paint a tableau of infinite depth using this tiny little palette. Right. In a way, that's a bigger flex than having like every color in the rainbow available to you. Exactly. Well, this is this is this is awesome. So I always ask everybody that I get to talk to about about their dreams for the future. So, Aram, this is our moment where we get a little sci fi and um, you get to talk about and hey, if you you've been you've been working on some sci fi fiction and I don't know like how you're framing it and whether you're talking about you know, it's like a hundred years in the future or three million. Um, what's the music? How do you imagine music being made in the future? And you can chop that down into a tiny little element. Like I have this great, like what if instruments did this? Or what if we could do this? Or how, what if we listened in this way? What are you thinking? What's what's your vision for the future in music? Uh, I have I have a couple of answers to that. Um, <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I know I go along. No, I love it. Um, so... So right like two years ago, uh, I think in 2019, I got asked to write like a, a piece for uh, Naxos, mm-hmm. you know, the classical music yeah. label. Uh, they were starting like a new website and they, they asked me to write an article for them. Uh, and they, they wanted me to write something. They were inviting people to write about what they thought were the, the ritualistic musical spaces of the 21st century. Or something Whoa, like that. that's that like a very fun. high concept thing. I love right? it. So. The, the, the editor, this great uh, ethnomusicologist, uh, in her own right, you know, she, I, I was like 99% certain that she wanted me to say that, the, that the, the internet is the ritualistic space for music in the 21st century. And that, you mm-hmm. know, that I, I would talk about mashups and, and all that stuff that you and I have kind of been talking about. And what I thought about it, and what I ended up writing instead, was that I thought the ritualistic space for music in the 21st century was going to be actual geographic space because Hmm. the internet has become so totalizing and normative and pervasive and ubiquitous and so intrinsic to our understanding of how music is made distributed listened to shared bought sold um interpreted commented upon that that music made between two like by one human being for another human being listen to through the air molecules in a shared space that is now the special 
exception. That's now mm-hmm. the ritualistic space for where, where especially meaningful music takes place. And then immediately after I published that, COVID happened <laughs> and, and we all got <laughs> shut down and all of us had to stop gigging in person. Mm-hmm. And we all started mm-hmm. like only gigging online and doing like these streaming concerts and stuff, which I don't know about you. Like, I mean, it, it, it's better than nothing, but I mean, it's like, you know, it's like VR pornography compared to like, you know, having sex with someone you love. It's like a completely different experience that in many ways suffers tremendously for lack of like a, you know, a, a, an embodied, a, an embodied presence. An embodied <laughs> presence. That's a very generous way to put it, right? So, so, so after spending like a year and a half only gigging in my basement on a live stream, I really came to, to, to realize how quickly we'd come around to, to the, and the first time I played a gig in person, uh, po- I won't say post COVID cause it's still happening, but yeah. COVID, um, you know, I, I was almost in tears. It just, it felt, it was only for like 20, 25 people, but it felt so powerful to watch the faces and bodies of the people that I was playing for as I played these songs and to, to see them smile and to hear them clap like in person. And I realized like I'd done this, you know, I don't know how many times have you and I gigged together hundreds of times, right? Mm -hmm. I've done this thousands of times in my life, but I took it so for granted so many of those times. It wasn't until it was deprived for me that I fully appreciated how special it is to just be a couple of human beings in a room together making sounds that mean something. You know? Yeah, I had a similar experience with finally hearing people sing together um, after you know eighteen months of not, and it's a deeply moving experience. And I hope everyone everyone gets to have something of that. And, and maybe we could figure out a way to have that without a pandemic. But that's a whole like other that. conversation. So let, let me let me give you the other answer to your question. Yeah, though. give me the let other me, answer. Let, let me fast forward. <laughs> I, I actually think that from a technological standpoint, the most interesting and potentially challenging and therefore generative thing happening in music right now is AI generated music. Mm-hmm. And um, here's how I see it going down. Um, you know, you look at like a company like Spotify. Um, Spotify, Spotify is a like they, they spend roughly 70% of uh, of their income just on content acquisition, right? Mm-hmm. And which is good because we, you know, recording artists and composers like to be paid. Um, That's and, nice. And, yeah. Yeah. It's good to be paid. And it, it, everybody's saying, oh, well, Spotify should pay more. I only make, you know, six tenths of a cent. What, you know, they can't pay more because they don't make that much, right? Yeah. There's no, there's, there isn't any more to pay, right? There's like consumers will not be paying a hundred dollars a month for Spotify ever. So you're not, you're never going to get your like 10 cents per, per stream. It's never going to happen. So just give it up. Right. But from Spotify's standpoint, they've tried to cut down their content acquisition costs in all kinds mm-hmm. of, of ways. Some of them ethical and some less so, right? Like let's invest in podcasts. If they can get you to listen to podcasts instead of listening to music, they have to pay less for every hour that you spend on their service. And therefore they, they reap more in terms of profits. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, they hire all these producers to make genre like, you know, to pad out their playlists. You know, they have like the dope, fresh, funky jams playlist and, you know, the uh, the beats to relax to and chill with playlist. And, you know, all these like kind of micro genre playlists. And then, in you know, instead of playing 10 songs in a row by like recording artists, they will like 
stick in a couple of tunes that they made in house, like mm -hmm. paying someone 500 bucks a pop to, to produce three minutes of like, you know, Muzak hip hop. Yeah. Piano and, or yeah. Low, low, like lo-fi chill beats or piano yeah, no, exactly. music for study kind of stuff. Yeah. Massage mm -hmm. music, right? Like just like the, just the, the emptiest least, you know, communicative music you can imagine, but they'll, they'll stick it in there because they, if, if they create an entire playlist of that, you would log off and stop paying them. But if they stick one or two in to the hour, you're not going to stop listening and you won't object. And you'll never know because they give these in-house tracks, like they'll call mm -hmm. the artist, like, you know, DJ Cactus Face, you know, like, okay. like, And then you look, there's only one track <laughs> I, by DJ Cactus Face. I kind of right? wish that there had been. I don't think there probably is a DJ Cactus Face because there's apparently a little everything my, my kids have discovered. Yeah. But um, yeah. I, DJ Cactus Face is a good one. So, so Spotify content team, take note. Anyway. Yeah. So I'm going somewhere here. So I think ultimately, <laughs> like, so we, so, so algorithmically generated genre music is already a thing that exists now. And there are a mm -hmm. bunch of cottage companies out there, mostly coming out of university labs with, backed by venture money uh, that, you know, promised to like, it started out with like this computer made a Beethoven score that even experts can't tell wasn't by Beethoven. Yeah. But now it's just like, you can just like, you know, and, and it's not just music, like GPT does this with text and, mm -hmm. and you know, image, uh, ImageNet does this with, with photos, but you can basically procedurally generate any kind of genre music, especially non-vocal music, very, very yes. quickly at this point. And, and so, you can also take it up a notch and have an artist's stems or sound packs or whatever and basically weave a huge endless track by whatever, your favorite electronic artist or... Um, producer. So, Absolutely. you know, you right. can have it have a little bit more human character, but it is very programmatic. And I'm, and I wrote, I wrote about this a bit in, in the book that I I'm working on now, the secret life of data, but oh, um, fun. you know, there was that Nirvana song that the quote new unquote Nirvana song that was yeah. quote unquote written by an AI. And here's the interesting thing about it is if you actually look at how it's done, it's not as simple as pressing a button, mm -hmm. right? So in, in the case of the Nirvana song, uh, the way that it basically worked was they fed all of the sheet music and recordings for Nirvana into uh, into a machine learning algorithm. And the machine learning algorithm spit out all of these different kind of melodic and timbral options. And then a human being chose between those options and mm -hmm. assembled something together that sounded legit to their ears and then hired a Kurt Cobain soundalike to sing the lyrics that were generated by the machine learning algorithm. Yeah, so it was it was really a, a, like a, a collaboration between the human being and the computer to to produce this thing. So my guess is that Spotify and Co. and Netflix and 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 Amazon and Apple and and the rest of these guys will probably be investing very heavily in AI generated entertainment, including mm -hmm. music. In fact, I suspect that The Witcher was written by an AI, and I mean that. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. <laughs> I strongly I would, we'll suspect have, it. Yeah, we'll have to point out some Witcher, Witcher, Witcher um, bot or not bot yeah, <laughs> plot exactly. points. I, anyway, <laughs> it would explain. Let's just say it, it would explain a lot. Uh, <laughs> but, but I, you know, I, I suspect that they will do what they've already been doing with their kind of in-house produced music, and they'll just kind of seed. They'll they'll mm -hmm. A/B test their AI music with consumers to see what passes the smell test and what doesn't. And then they'll, they'll get smarter and smarter and smarter. And at some point flip the switch and offer you like an all AI channel or an all AI service. That's like, 
you know, $2 a month instead of $5 a month or whatever. Um, and then th that's going to open up all kinds of interesting questions because we don't yet have a way to account for AI authorship in American yeah. copyright law. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know there's been attempts um, using both like the algorithms as a quote unquote rights holder and using the people who created the algorithm. Like, yeah, it's very murky territory. Yeah. And, and ultimately, it's a circle that can't be squared unless... Well, so so copyright, <laughs> yeah. copyright is essentially, uh, and this is something I've written about, like at disgusting length elsewhere. But <laughs> copyright is like a um, a signifier of personhood in Western mm -hmm. liberal societies, right? Like, yeah. in order to have a copyright, you have to be an an author, and in order to be an author, you have to be a human being. So mm -hmm. famously, like there there were actually legal debates in America prior to the Civil War as to whether a slave could own a copyright. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And 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 the answer was that they couldn't. There's legal precedent saying that that mm -hmm. that enslaved humans could not own a copyright because they were not humans, right? And neither could their owners have the copyright. So if an enslaved person composed something, it would not be copyrightable because neither the the slave nor the owner, the slave master, would have the right to the work, right? So mm -hmm. so this is an issue that predates AI. And there there's so many parallels between AI and slavery, by the way, which like to a disgusting degree. Um, but uh, but I think, you know, it's it's kind of an issue that that America punted by by outlawing slavery, you know, 160 years ago, <laughs> which was a good move. But, yeah, it, it avoided the issue of, of personhood and copyright. <laughs> the, single, the single best move in American history, although you know, we're, we're slipping backwards. Um, but yeah, so I, I think I think that whole complex because it opens up a Pandora's box. It forces us to ask the question: Can an AI be a human? And it, and if they can't, why or not? Per, or at least a person, right? Like someone, an entity, Correct. a legal entity who has some sort of at least, at least limited personhood. Right. And remember Ouch. that the whole the whole <laughs> rationale, not just the rationale, the legal basis for copyright in the American system is the U.S. Constitution, Article mm. 1, Section 8, Clause 8, which, spe which specifies that the only reason Congress has the power to create copyright laws is to incentivize artists to create, to, to add mm -hmm. some, to, to give them an economic incentive to share their work with the public through the marketplace. So computers can't be economically incentivized. They don't need to earn salaries. Right. So. So even by a constitution, we, we would have to rethink what the Constitution means just in order to create a copyright for AI music. Wow. Well, here's the other thing I wanted to throw your way. Um, and that is I I personally think that AI and human that we're, we're looking we're going to look at a hybrid scenario. And I'm not talking like a kind of cyborg thing, blah, 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 blah. Um, but something kind of way more fluid and, and maybe more distinct or maybe not. But I can see like multiple humans plus an AI collaborating in a very to what us would feel like kind of terrifying and seamless way to make things and alter things. Um, and so like an Elon Musk like brain portal interface. <laughs> I, you know, I think that is ridiculous because I don't think the brain actually is past a certain point. You know, we can't get to the nuance of how the brain assigns uh, function to certain places. We may never know that. Right. But um, it, it may be through just like more ordinary things um, that like fingers and and fingers and, and faces and who knows what else gestures um shimmies you know people get to shake their hips together and the ai is like okay great here's your symphony um but i love that yeah I, 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 let's I make love that, that happen <laughs> I, I, 
I've had that fantasy. My <laughs> no, I have. I, I remember being a kid and thinking like, act. I remember actively having the thought like, I wish I could translate the way I'm wiggling my toes right now into yeah. music. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and but that's what we've always done. That's what all instruments are. That's Absolutely, what a drum is, yeah. Right? Um, and that's what lots of dances are, are ways to make music by moving in certain patterns together. So it's kind of, it's, it's amazing. Anyway, I, I think it's definitely a hybrid thing. Like there's a lot of oppositional talk, like the robots, the worst being the robots are going to steal our jobs or they're making music, they're making like art into like nonsense or like, you know, they're, they're undermining the value of art, which is not possible, um, <laughs> you know, in a, in a big picture sense, but um, there's definitely going to be a mix. It's going to be a, a real back and forth. And some people will want to use more AI and some people will be like, seriously, well, I'm just going to like set this up and let it run and then, you know, send it to the massage company. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the massage music. By the way, like, you know me, but your listeners don't. Um, I am a total like atavist. Like my principal instrument is the upright bass. You know, like that's how square and old fashioned I am. So I talk a good game about AI music and auto tune and mashups and stuff. But when it comes down to it, if I have an hour to make music, I'm not going to make a fucking mashup. I'm going to go downstairs and practice my bass and like try to sound as much like Ron Carter as I can. You know, like and ultimately like the, See, an AI can help you with that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they could. They could help me with my golf swing, too, if I play golf. But. No, but so, I mean, and this gets back to what we were, what we were talking about in the beginning and what I think is like the, like the central issue, right? Which is that we have to stop confusing music as a human practice from music as a commodity. They have a lot to do with each other and they reflect on each other in many ways, but they're fundamentally different mm. sets of questions, mm -hmm. right? And like, I'm, I love making money playing music. You know, I love like, you know, like I said, like, you know, uh, Denia and I, my, my musical partner and wife and your your friend, Denia Best, yes. and I have a new album coming out uh, from a German label called GMO Records later this year. And, you know, I'm so happy about that. I, I'm happy that somebody else is going to be spending the money to market and promote, like, you know, and, and, and put vinyl out on my behalf and that I, mm. you know that I'm going to make money from it. And we already licensed one of the tunes to a, to a movie and, you know, we're making money. Awesome. From it. It's, it's, it is awesome. I love making money, but I'm not, but I love playing the bass more than I love making money from playing the bass. Like I've got mm -hmm. other ways to make money. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I only have yeah. one way to experience, you know, the profound joy of the music, the profound joy of music. That's a, a perfect way of putting it. And, and I would, I would, I would rather play bass. I would rather play music that I love for $0 than play music that doesn't interest me for, you know, the same amount of money that I make as a professor. That's amazing. Well, I'm going to I'm going to wrap things up here, Aram. This was a really, really fun conversation. And I hope um, listeners that you enjoyed coming along for the ride and got some food for thought. Um, Aram, we'll throw a bunch of links down uh, to your website and about your books and about your music and about fun things like Stevie Wonder playing a talk box <laughs> in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much for your time and your incredible thoughts and insights. Uh, Tristra, I love you, and, and it's always a pleasure to speak with you on or off the record, and, and I wish you and Dimitri uh, all the best. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We have new episodes for you every week. 
Did you know? You can dig deeper into all our episodes with the show notes at musictectonics.com. While you're there, look for the latest about our annual conference, sign up for our newsletter to get updates, or get the Music Tectonics app for music tech news. Everything we do explores seismic shifts that shake up music and technology, the way the Earth's tectonic plates cause quakes and make mountains. Connect with Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And find me, Dimitri Vitsa, if you can spell it, on LinkedIn. Bye-bye. You're listening to Music Tectonics.